Good morning, Ivy Podcast listeners. My name is Suta Calling Last. Today, uh, we are so honored to have our mentor, Melanie Turvalon. She is one of the developers of the cultural humility curriculum that we train in. We are joined today with yes, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. How are you doing? Hello, I'm still recovering from the COVID here in Vegas, but I am feeling uh, better and stronger each day. And I'm so excited to have this guest. I know I've talked in previous episodes anticipating this moment. So here we are. Melanie is actually on the show now. Yes, and I am here and I'm so happy to be here. And let me just say, Melissa, my goodness, I'm glad you're recovering. I'm glad you're getting better. This COVID has been more than a notion for all of us. So yes, heal, 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 my friend. Thank you. Yes. And you do look like you have more color in your face this week. (laughs) Thank you. I can almost taste my food again. Almost. That's so good to hear. Um, So we wanted to talk a little bit with you, Melanie, about culture humility. And we've just been, Tyler and Melissa and I have been busy this past year or the entire pandemic doing virtual trainings with different county health departments and county employees, city employees, institutions, organizations, all different kinds of people from all different walks of life. And we've had some really powerful groups come together like attorney generals and trans um, advocates. And it's just so amazing. The the groups of people that culture humility brings together, trying to work towards how we can better our relationships with each other. I guess one of my first questions is, and and I know we didn't prepare you for this, so, (laughs) but uh, what Is one of your most rewarding experiences that you've had in your time with culture humility these over these past few years? So just some background here. I try to remind folks when I'm able to do this and I'm in their presence that this work of cultural humility grew out of the community organizing effort that happened at Children's Hospital Oakland in the 1990s. And if you've watched the short film, that information is in there. It's been many years that I've been doing this work around cultural humility. So I have a couple of wonderful moments, I must say. I think one of the wonderful moments going way back was when I was facilitating a meeting at Children's. It was that we had sessions during that time where each racial or ethnic group could and was invited to present eight sessions to the to the hospital as a whole, not just to the physicians, but to everyone who worked in the in the hospital from the environmental services people, which is the euphemism for the janitorial staff, and including administrators. So we'd have meetings where the whole cross-section of the hospital would be present. And I facilitated many, many meetings during that time. And one of the, I guess the fourth or fifth grouping that we had was uh, white families and issues. And that's what we called each of them, each topic, say African-American families and issues, indigenous people, families and issues. And the community would come and present, make this presentation. So in the one on white people, I was the facilitator as I always was and the presenter spoke. And then I would navigate the questions that would come from the audience. And people would ask questions. And in in most of the other sessions, I'd be able to make some comment and then pass it to the presenter, either repeating the question or adding some nuance or making some comment about it. Well, 
I, I realized in almost every question that was being asked about the white people, white families and issues that I was saying, I don't know. And I turned to the presenter and I'd say, I don't know. And I turned to the presenter and I'd say, I don't know. And I turned to the presenter. And Jan Marie Garcia, who was the co-author of Cultural Humility, would be always in the audience, taking notes, paying attention to the dynamics. And we'd always, we'd debrief after each session. And after that, when I walked back to Jan and she looked at me and she said, Melanie, do you realize how many times you said, I don't know? I wasn't really paying, I wasn't in that way of attending. And she said, you know, it took a lot of humility, Melanie, for you to do that. You're a physician in the hospital. You're an attending physician. You're the director of this program. And I looked at Jan and we talked in the way Jan and I always did. And I said, well, Jan, when I don't know, I have to say, I don't know. <laughs> and so that was a moment that she and I both recount. And, and when we're in trainings or we're together, or it makes sense, you know, the context that we're in. So that's one. The other that's been important for me is in the uh, mid, let me see if I can get this time frame right, somewhere around 2010, 11, maybe in there, I was working at PolicyLink, which is a, a policy think tank that's located here in the Bay Area. They have national presence. They do incredible work on equity. And at that time, I was not doing cultural humility training. I had finished, a, I had left a very big organization where I had a high level job and was at PolicyLink in a kind of transition place where I knew that I, and PolicyLink knew as well, I wasn't going to stay there for a very long time. I was there to do a specific job and move on. And one day I was in the office and I'd gotten an email from a person, Jay Africa, who sent me an email and said, I'd really like to talk with you about cultural humility. And I said, well, sure, I'm at Policy Link, come sit down, talk with me. And so Jay came and sat and talked with me and talked about how for them, as a training as a therapist, that when they read the article, it, something inside of them went, well, of course, and yes, and why is it, why aren't we using this? And so Jay sat down and talked with me about it. And near the end of the conversation, they turned to me and said, and what are you doing here? How come you're not out in the world training and presenting this and all that? And I went, oh, right. And so that was a shift. That At that point, it was a shift. And I turned then, I left PolicyLink, which I, again, I had not planned to stay there. And they knew that as well. And turned completely to the consulting life. And at that point, it started doing lots of training and, and uh, not just training, but consulting with organizations, strategic view on how do you use cultural humility in your organization and how do you use it at all levels of your organization? How do the individuals learn about the principles and practices of cultural humility? How do you use that when you're engaging with the communities that you happen to be working with or the disciplines you're working with? And then how does your institution take on these practices and embed them in the organization so that they're ever present. So that was a very important place and moment for me with the cultural humility work. And as an, an aside, Jay came over yesterday to spend the afternoon with me in the garden that and I, and we had a talk then about, a, well, of course it's pandemic. So it's been 18 months. We'd you know, done the text thing and phone call, but always so, 
so rich and so precious to see people in person now, perhaps didn't, well, I think for sure, didn't appreciate it beforehand. So that's another one. And I would say overall, some of the aha moments that, that happen again and again for me are when people read the article on their own, or it's assigned to them in the in classroom or something of that sort, or they're referred to it from a social justice organization. And they'll send me an email and they'll say, this has changed my life. This has changed the way I do my racial equity work. This has changed the way I think about social justice. And those are the moments when I always send these to Jan and she sends me the one she gets to, of course. Those are the moments when we feel like this was, this was an, an important contribution on, our, on all of our common roads to liberation. I also let people know when it makes sense. And so this is a place where it makes sense that when Jan and I wrote the article at the end of the 90s, none of the academic press wanted to publish it. They kept sending it back to us asking us to remove this and remove that. And if we had removed what the academic press wanted us to remove, there would have been nothing there. As you can imagine, they wanted us to remove the references to oppression and to uh, differential treatment. It was just, but that was that time. That was, that was that time in the academy. And it still is that time in the academy, despite the fact that we hear, broadly speaking, more taking to task the way that white supremacy has dominated all of the work in the academy. And nonetheless, we hear at the same time the way when money comes out as it has during this period of time for racial equity work, rather than thinking about the power dynamics and who should be actually at the middle of that research, still they're white academics who are rushing to get that money, who have the connections and the resources and the know-how to get into those systems, which is just a per perpetuation of old practices. Uh, so at any rate, one, one piece I mentioned is that Jan said to me, this is back at the end of the 90s, I was then working at uh, the California Endowment I was advisor to the first and second presidents of the California Endowment. And Jan sent me a, an email and said, Melanie, here's the, we only have a, one or two more options of places to send this. I said, well, then send it, Jan, you know, send it. And she sent it to the Journal of the Poor and Underserved at Meharry University. It's the, the premier black medical college. Many people don't know that. And they accepted the article and published it. This is the last comment I will make around this idea, which is when I went to speak at Meharry a couple of years ago with Leanna Lewis, who is a phenomenal trainer, cultural humility trainer, I did a, a noon conference kind of presentation where people came from Vanderbilt and Meharry, and it just so happened that the woman who is the editor of the Journal for the Poor and Underserved was in the audience. And so in the Q&A part, she raised her hand and stood up and said, I just wanna let you and Jan know that your article is the most requested article in the history of the journal. And so all of that reminds me to say the main point here, which is don't let people tell you no. Mm -hmm. Don't let people tell you no. You're doing good work. You know it's good work. Just because one audience doesn't want it, 
another audience will want it. And I think in particular, when we're doing work that is social justice work and is work that is rooted in community voice, we have to keep being clear. And we have the advantage of people like Melissa who are in the media, who are present, who can get the word out in a more public education kind of forum. And to remember that that's always important and it's important for us to persist on that. That's so such an amazing story to hear about the Journal of the Poor and Underserved. That's so great of them. Yeah. And so amazing. Just, I mean, it brings to mind the different kinds of participants that we've had over the past three years that we've been training uh, virtually for the last 18 months. Uh, Melissa and I, we find we have a kind of like a debriefing weekly meeting every Tuesday. And we as women of color, feel the liberation, like the internal tools of reflection and looking at our power, how that changes from environment to environment based on the community we're in, and just being able to navigate socially just easier or more patient and forgiving on our own journeys and then other people's journeys as well. But it just is liberating is a really good word for it, but it just takes a huge weight off of this human journey that we're, we're on and, and how complex things can get. And then one of the, the challenges that we've seen in this training is that for people of color, it's kind of like a well, yes. And that is very true. And wow, I wish more institutes can think like this. For our white participants, we have we have really great allyship coming out, voicing things to certain leaders that, you know, sometimes leaders are not taking recommendations or grievances the same from people of color as they are from their white male employees. And, and I'm seeing this very, uh, vividly, I guess is, is, is one word to describe it. Mm -hmm. But some of our white participants say it's just conceptual work. And I'm like, I don't know if they're feeling it the way I feel mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And so for those participants who have that struggle or challenge to move this from the internal, because I see those tools, those internal reflection tools of identifying where your power is, identifying where your assumptions and biases are rooted and then dismantling that I see those as real tools and it's kind of like I guess I can make an analogy to a migraine is like people feel a migraine it's very intense but unless we're wincing in pain nobody can tell what's going on inside mm -hmm. but there's something very real happening there and with cultural humility, it's some serious critical thinking and heavy lifting and it's emotional work, kind of like bulldozing through your own BS, like Jan puts it, the, the scripts we learn. And I found out that in part of my journey that I was oppressing myself because I had adopted somebody else's script. That was the liberating point for me is just saying, is that what I really think of myself? Is that really my true potential as a person? And I, you know, felt, no, it's somebody else's script that was said to me at some point in time. And I just, without question, adopted it. And so dismantling all of that to me is a real tool. And then bringing that to an organization so that others in your workplace can do the same thing so that every day as new employees and new hires come on, you're, you're adjusting the organizational culture based on the individuals that make up that place 
it's a real tool. But I, I guess, what are your thoughts on those people who feel like, okay, well, this is a concept. How do we have institutional accountability with this? Well, I loved your examples. And we'll say what we have come to learn. I, I think that in a, a large part of us have come to understand that it's through the examples and through the stories and through our own individual stories or collective stories that we're able to understand anything that's an abstraction. Uh, at least that's how I look at it. I think you know, that, that, yes, cultural humility has four principles or concepts in it. It's a conceptual idea. And it's a conceptual idea that grew out of that dynamic of practice and theory, action and theory. There's always a back and forth between the two of those. We experience our lives every day and some through some action or through some experience, some new conceptual way of looking at our lives arrives, some new perspective. And so when, I, when this question comes up about whether these are just concepts, I turn people back to the difficult practice that is at the heart of cultural humility, the difficult, two difficult practices. One is the, uh, the whole practice of self-reflection that is ever-changing and is lifelong. So the person I am today at age 70 is not the person I was when I was in my 40s and we developed this model and started using it. Much has happened for me in between here. And so when I think about my own power, privilege, lack of power, lack of privilege, that has, has changed over that period, over those years. Um, I'm now 70 years old. In many circumstances now, I am granted by virtue of my age, some measure of power that is generational, which I would offer to you, at least I'm a black woman. So in my community, in my culture, that is only right. That is only right and just. Not to say that what everything I say should be revered or bowed down to or anything like that, but there is an element of that kind of power that is associated with the recognition and acknowledgement of how long I've lived and what I've learned and what I might impart as wisdom and, and shared experience from my own cultural point of view. And as a woman, too, as well, um, this piece about how that you mentioned about how institutions are able to hear the, the voices of the white males uh, in contrast to the voices of the people of color, even if the people of color are saying the same thing and are often saying it more clearly and with, with greater depth, uh, that, that's just white supremacy in practice and has been around since, you know, I can never remember, I've never been in a situation in this country where that dynamic has not been present. So I just wanted to make comment on that. And while there's, there's change, for sure there's change. We have not, we've not said that we've not eliminated the patriarchy. We have not eliminated white supremacy. And so all of those habits and those cultural norms that we're trying to wrestle with are still present. I do think that these two main principles of critical self-reflection and the person across from you, seeing the person across from you as expert require, as you mentioned, a lot of deep emotional work and practical work. And, and that's why when we train around cultural humility, we, we don't jump right into the principles. We jump with setting the stage for how we're going to come together in dialogue in ways that we haven't before. So we have community agreements that say, 
we're going to remember to speak from the place of I, that we're going to remember it's completely fine to disagree. You just don't, just don't be disagreeable, all right? And to remember that you can be very respectful and have a different point of view and that conflict is fine. It can be transformational. And it depends on whether or not we're able to be in dialogue with each other. And so that's, as you know, it's a whole other piece of the cultural humility training. What's dialogue? And what are the questions we have to ask ourselves? So we're ready for dialogue. And so with all of that work that's associated with self-reflection and there are exercises that we do around self-reflection to identify the places where we have power and privilege and where we do not based on our identities, which are very complex. Every, and, and this is part of what I think people um, can sometimes have some difficulty with, with cultural humility. We open up the area and say, this is a room full of individuals. Very complicated when we come to identity. It now has the language of intersectionality, which is, I think, wonderful that people are more and more using it, though not necessarily understanding it. Still a place to do a lot of um, work, popular education. Uh, and to remember that each of those areas creates, it creates a different lived experience and then a different person who is present in the conversation of the moment. So to hold all of that as a trainer and to hold all of that as an individual participant can be quite difficult and, and has a lot of uh, wonderful um, fruit that comes from it when one can be open and in a certain sense vulnerable enough to say, I'm, I'm here as my whole self. I'm not asking you to say you love me, you know, or that I'm wonderful. It's not that. I'm just telling you this is really who I am. Not the story you have put on who I am, but who I am. And so in that regard, I'll give you myself as an example. I'm very fair. I have blue eyes. When I was a little girl, my hair was blonde. It's all white now. And so I have had people, not a not many, but one or two people have written to me who are trainers and have said, you know, I had a hard time using this material because you're a white woman. And I've had to use it as an opportunity to say, and, and how much do you know about the history of the United States, the slave trade in plantations and the lives of enslaved people? My mother was born on a plantation. My father was born in New Orleans. His people are from Haiti. And so, but there's no way, and I'm not, I have no blame towards people who bring that up. There's no way, however, that you can know who a person is unless you ask them and you're respectful enough to not make that assumption. And I am, I'm going to step out here and say, uh, in the indigenous community, I imagine this happens routinely. If people are just looking at our physical features and then trying to categorize us in the many ways we identify individually, racially and ethnically, that's a sure failure. It's a certain failure. Um, so I feel like the piece of the person as expert is really tough for folks to say, oh my gosh, Melanie, I always had all these opinions of you, including things that have to do with class and, and my sexual identity or any of that. You can't just look at me and know that, <laughs> you know? That's not possible. And even though I do have MD after my name, you can't assume what that turns into in terms of money, nor how I use my money. I have a big family. So uh, just to 
to put a little lightness in here to remember we can't know that about people, but we can if we're in dialogue and we can we can if our our purpose and our work is to deepen our relationships with each other in a way that is really honest and that really does come from who are you, Sutta? What do you think about this element in the world? How do you act on it? What is your organizing practice? And yours, Melissa, what is it? How does it show up? How do you appear? Not how do others want to describe you? Uh, so that's usually, that's part of how I help people to think about it. And also to put another piece in here, has to do with remembering that in the moment, in whatever moment we're in, from this moment to the next moment to the moments ahead, which we don't know, that if there a kind of um, consciousness is required, not just awareness, but a kind of consciousness that I am in dynamic relationship with the two of you right now. And in that dynamic relationship, we're sharing who we are in our thoughts and our processes. And within that, for me, as for each of you, I hope, is the reckoning with, and what's, what are the power dynamics going on here? Because there are power dynamics happening between the three of us right now, right? I'm, I'm the person who you're talking to who originated along with Jan this concept. So there's some level of upness about that. Melissa's got the control because she's, you know, she's going to put this on the air. So there's that power dynamic. I'm going to like, sister, sister, I better trust you, right? And then, Sutta, you have a power dynamic, and then you kind of instigated all of this. And instigate isn't the word I want to use, but you've you've uh, you made the, the the reach out for this to be possible. So to think about those power dynamics and the power dynamics that exist. I'm a black woman. You are indigenous women. We live different lives. We have different histories. We have different relationships to the nation, the state, to race, to racism to oppression. Our experiences are, are different. And what we hold, I, I remind myself that what I end up holding in my heart and my soul, for me, it is very Black, because I'm a Black woman. And that's been my experience. And I've gone through all these institutions as a Black woman, with all that comes with that particular dynamic. And I identify as a person of color, and I identify as an activist, and all that's true. And deep in my soul and my life experience, I've got to be honest about what, what's really at the center here. And understand that that will not necessarily be at this, it won't be at the center for other people. Something else is at the center. And how do we grab all of these centers uh, through very um, loving and conscious dialogue to agree to our common path of uh, what I keep saying, our common path is the end, end of oppression and to developing liberation, which we've got to imagine together, otherwise we won't get there. And along the way for us, part of the imagining is, well, how do we break what have been in the past, the ways we have thought about ourselves or thought about our work, thought about our relationships with each other, thought about who we are in relationship to people we serve. So cultural humility is one, one contribution to that very big 
piece of work we all have to do together. And, and Jan and I do think that the tools and the concepts associated with it, with it are helpful for us as we're going through this struggle together. Yeah, I know the power dynamics. Nobody can see it right now, but on video, the sun is, the sun is shining on Melanie. <laughs> and there's rays of sunshine coming down on her. <laughs> um, but uh, it's so, uh, so great to hear you talk about this um, and answer. Melissa has a couple of questions as well. And Tyler sent us some questions too. Right. And so Canada as a federal government is on a journey right now for truth and reconciliation for indigenous people. Uh, the National Native American Boarding School Association just in introduced a I guess a policy or a bill an act maybe <laughs> I should look into that of truth it's a truth commission essentially because they say we can't have reconciliation without truth and in our culture humility talks we find that you know when we're critically reflecting about ourselves we have to think about some things are really take a lot of courage to really look at because you have to have the strength to analyze your own ego and where the, the places of, of pride where you don't want to be hurt or embarrassed or, mm -hmm. you know, things yeah. like that. And just how cultural humility work is a lot of that. It's like, if it's on a spectrum, there's humility on one end and then ego on the other end. And I'm not sure what's in between, but it's a lot of heavy lifting and, and work that you have to be brave to engage into because you're really looking at who you are and where you where your ideas are formed from the foundations of your your thoughts and beliefs and and so yeah I'm not sure where I'm going with that but like do you see a lot of truth telling for organizations and for individuals that make up those organizations one significant step that they could take is is truth telling right before we, we have organizations who have extremely discriminatory and racist incidents happening in the community and everybody goes to work and says, oh, that doesn't really happen here. Check your race, culture and religion at the door. You know, we've got a we we don't see color here. <laughs> and then that's effectively saying we don't see your culture either. Just what are your thoughts on that? I don't, I'm rambling. Yeah. Now. So, so, so you've said many things that I, I will make comment on. One is, let me start from this place, which is that Jan and I are clear that we clear and understand that cultural, the model of cultural humility is not for everyone. And that it is a model that asks of us to not just be aware, but to be conscious of how we are operating in the world, how we are, how we are individually operating in the world and how we are operating in relationship to other people. Again, either if we're in the uh, servant leadership capacity or if we are in an organizing work and we're a participant, whatever that relationship is, it's not for everyone, demands a kind of attention that is focused not in a, a navel-gazing kind of way, not like that, not, oh, let me make Melanie be some kind of perfect person in the, in the struggle for social justice, not like that, but to understand what the dynamics are that are at play that are happening and what I'm presenting in relationship with other individuals and within an organization. 
So that that's one thing. Not it's not for everybody. The other point I want to co-sign is that it does take a lot of courage. When we were first doing the work, and you know, we were summarizing what we were doing, and when I when I was working at Children's, and I'd go out early on, we were going out to do what we thought was important, uh, and communicating with other institutions that were simultaneously at that time trying to develop multicultural programs. And there were three or four in the country that were really had people of color who had who had like us decided we were just going to do this with the community wherever we were. And during that time, it was the early days of PowerPoint, not the very sophisticated way we have now. And so there would be a slide and it'd have like a couple bullet points on it to make people remember maybe what I would say. And in the early days, and I do have these slides still, I'm glad we didn't cast them aside, somebody will use them in an archive at some point. We put the word humility and words humility and courage together. And I would talk about humility and courage simultaneously. This was before we had gotten the whole thing together, you know, to call it cultural humility. And it is about understanding that humility, so much to say about this, but the humility piece is in contrast to being arrogant and is in contrast to seeing the world as if you know everything about it and you're always right. And it is also uh, an invitation to accept oneself as, as, as you are, however that is, not to make yourself less than. Some folks feel like, and people of color have said this to me in the beginning when we were talking about it, I said, I, I don't wanna talk about humility. Always white people need to talk about humility. I don't need to talk about humility. And so we went, we went through that, you know, that uh, humility is a common idea. It doesn't say only black or only white or only indigenous or only Asian. No, it's, it's an idea about how we live and with what kinds of values are we living. So that is a whole exploration too. In fact, in the training process, uh, we have a place now, I can't remember if, can't remember if you all have it in, the, in a deck that you're using. There are a lot of decks out there now. There's one in which we ask people to pause for a moment before we get into how we describe cultural humility and ask people to talk to the person next to them about what humility means for them. So that people are, again, being conscious before we start about, hmm, how do I feel about this word? Is this something I've learned in church? Is this something I've learned at school? Is this a word I never use? Is this a word I've never thought about? Uh, so there's that piece of it. And then in relationship to the truth-telling piece, which you mentioned, and I mentioned in the beginning as well, I think it's true that cultural humility is, and another foundation of it is about telling the truth and telling the truth as it is. I will give the example from one of the trainings, one of many trainings I've done, as you know, in, in which I put people into pairs to talk about, talk about whatever question you're talking about. And one that I do routinely is to ask people to talk about their family talk about their family's migration process or immigration process to the United States or for indigenous people, your experience in, the, in your nation. Uh, and to talk about what that has been like over time and encourage people to talk about things like not only 
where your great great grandparents actually were born and what happened subsequently to get you to wherever you're live, whatever land, part of our land you're living on now, but also to note um, political dynamics or activism or like that. So people end up telling very complex stories. And I'll say in that, without an exception, it's a time when the whole room changes as people start, first people are talking in twos, sometimes threes, and then people talk out as a group. And to hear all of these stories of people's families and lives and how complex they are and what people have endured, it really does change the dynamic in the room of what we're able to appreciate about the people we're sitting here with. That uh, we each, it's pretty, it's almost like a platitude now in some circles where people say, you never know what someone's going through. That's true. You also rarely know, unless you're in a good relationship with someone, what their past has been about, what their family's past has been about. And that truth telling can be quite painful. So when people tell their stories, and I, I won't recount the story, I haven't been given permission to do that, but when people tell their stories of leaving places because of political repression or in their, meaning the countries of origin that they come to and come to the United States from, um, when they talk about the political oppression, the kind of suffering that they have endured and the suffering they've endured when they get to the United States. That's the time when I can see and feel in the room that people are breaking through. And they're breaking through by not making the stories sweet. They're making the stories honest. They're letting us all know something we may know nothing about. The horror of it, the difficulty of it. And in the process, inviting us into other worlds that then we can understand in ways we haven't before. And also what happens, as I know you all have experienced, is and then we can identify in many ways with what those different levels are. Not that they're the same. And I remind us, as Audre Lorde help, help, has helped us with in the past, we're not trying to do um, the oppression Olympics here. We're not doing that. We are understanding that this table is big, it's spacious, and it's got ups and downs and you know some little dings in it and some places where we've patched it up so it's a little higher. But we're at, that's the table we're at. And that's the table we want to be at together. Uh, and part of it is hearing these stories and hearing them honestly. And also in that, that it takes a certain level of, um, of internal work that's been done in, in order to do that so that one doesn't feel shame, one doesn't feel blame, one doesn't walk away from a session feeling like, oh my gosh, now I need to go to a therapist. That's not what we're trying to do in cultural humility. And when I do the trainings, I always start off saying, listen, I'm a pediatrician by training. And yes, of course, by virtue of the work I've done, I, I, I learned a lot about therapy, but I'm not a trained therapist. And I don't, I try not to practice anything I, without a license, okay? And I encourage other people to remember that too. So it's not that, we're not trying to do therapy. We are in fact uh, providing some tools for people to use that will elevate our practices with each other as we're organizing and turning towards the work of social justice. However, we're calling it, if it's racial equity, 
if it's diversity, if it's equity, broadly speaking, if it's ending white supremacy, misogyny, homophobia, the list goes on and on. And these tools are applicable in any of those arenas and all of those arenas. That's so beautiful. As trainers who are you know, learning this and carrying this work on in the years forward, where do you want to see cultural humility in 20 years? And how important is it for us as trainers to seriously do the internal work to effectively carry on the work? Yes. Oh my gosh, what a great question. Well, let me say, first of all, our, uh, right now, our common goal is to have a conference in this coming September. I mean, this coming spring. That's if, you know, we don't go through the whole Greek alphabet with the COVID. So it's, we've got to be safe. We want to do it in person and we will wait till we can do it in person. It's important for that. And that, that conference, we will invite all the people who have trained, who can come and we'll do a couple of days in some residential place to review what we've learned over these years and have the opportunity to hear from me and Jan. We're writing a book. I think you know that. Uh, at that point, the book will be completed. So to hear our thinking from as it's matured, I would say, over the years, and then also to have an opportunity to hear from people all across the country and the ways they have taken the cultural humility model and applied it in their work and to share that through workshops and dialogue and like that. And where would I like to see it in 20 years? Well, let me answer the other question you asked about the trainers. Yes, I think the trainers have to continue to do work. Uh, one of the ways I do this, and I'm, I'm still doing some training and presentations. When I do a presentation with another facilitator, we always debrief, always, always debrief and ask, how was that? You looked like you were having a little trouble with that section there. What was that about? That dialogue in there didn't go so well. What, did, what were we missing? As well as, did you hear what so-and-so participant said? And that was amazing. How do we make sure that gets included as we go forward? So yes, trainers have to keep doing their own work. Uh, and the facilitator's side, there's a section on what, what, what you need to do to prepare yourself to facilitate this work. That's very important. In 20 years, I would really be happiest. Um, I'd be 90 then. If I'm still alive, I'd be happy if cultural humility as, a, as principles and practices were common through social justice organizations and seen as common through the academic world as well, where people routinely, well, I wouldn't say routinely anymore, but used to talk about cultural competence, that they would lead with cultural humility. So that would be, that would be wonderful. I'd also hope that in 20 years, people would be able to see the work that had been done in the past 20 years and understand its relationship to the evolving, which will be the case, the ever evolving movements and struggles towards liberation, which will be required and to adapt the model as necessary. I think we have a, we have, what we have in there is, is useful, it's clear, it's stable. And, and yet I also understand fully that times change and the language changes and the needs change. So I would hope that cultural humility through the work of the trainers and the, through the work of participants and especially through the work of people who use it in their organizations, that it develops, that anything that comes new to it is added on explicitly and clearly. And that's part of the reason Jan and I are writing this book, to say, here's where it is now. 
you know, where it is 20 years from now will depend on how dynamic a set of principles and practices these remain. And if they become stale and stagnant, 20 years from now, people will say, cultural what? Huh? Who? We, we don't think that will be the case, but it, it, if, if, if the work fails to continue on the road of being relational and not only in the head, then that, that's an, an outcome. As long as we are, as long as I feel like people who are using the model remember that this is about how we are with each other in community, in our workplace, and in organizations, there will be a cultural humility 20 years from now maybe with a different tagline. Well, thank you so much for joining. As you can hear listeners, this is such an intriguing, like invigorating, refreshing conversation around cultural humility and the two-day trainings never seem like enough. So we can not do justice in, in the 50 minutes we have together this morning, but I hope we gave you a little bit of a peek at what is possible with yourself and in your workplace with culture humility. Thank you so much for joining us today, Melanie. And I hope we have a part two soon. Thank oh, you. thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a good day. If you would like to learn more about cultural humility or how to attend a training, you can visit our website, indigenousvision.org slash cultural humility. You can also visit the links in the show description for this podcast, episode 39, Indigenous Vision. 